Welcome to MCS Pentecost, Pentecostal podcasts about theology and life in the Spirit, featuring both scholars and practitioners. MCS Pentecosts are produced by Masters College and Seminary in Ontario, Canada. I'm Peter Newman, Assistant Academic Dean of Masters Pentecostal Bible College. This is Van Johnson, Dean of Masters Pentecostal Seminary. This podcast is part one of two of a live presentation given by Dr. Peter Newman to a group of pastors at Royal View Pentecostal Church in London, Ontario, on February 21, 2013. The topic, Important Theological Issues in the Church Today. In this first part, he suggests some reasons why so many theological issues have arisen in the past couple decades and addresses topics of practical relevance for the church related to the gospel and salvation. In other words, soteriology. Well, good morning, everyone. Appreciate you coming out on the middle of February day. Um, My name is Peter Newman. I'm the Assistant Academic Dean at Masters College in Peterborough. And uh, our theme today is called, While You Were Pastoring. And uh, so this morning, what we're going to take a look at is uh, just some theological issues that we think have uh, arisen in the church today that we need to be aware of, um, uh, not only in the Bible College, but as practitioners as well. So I'm going to take a look at some theological issues, and then later on, uh, Dr. Van Johnson is going to look at some biblical issues, some trends that have been going on. So we live in Canada. And uh, winter, of course, comes with snow, which is wonderful all of the time, as we know. Uh, One of the downsides, however, is that you have to shovel snow. And some of us have probably been doing that this winter. And what we like to do is clear away a walkway, maybe clear away our driveway, and put it in nice piles where we hope that it's going to stay there until spring comes and melts it away and deals with it once and for all. And maybe some of us have had those days when uh, we're trying to shovel snow in the middle of a snowstorm. You ever done that and you're, you're thinking, well, I better do part of the driveway, part of the walkway now, because if I leave it rather than the one or two inches of snow, now I'm going to end up with several and then I'm going to have a sore back and, and all the rest of that. So you're trying to do that, but the snow's blowing and the stuff that you thought was so neat and tidy to put up on the side in piles sort of spills back on to the driveway or onto the walkway. And some winters, there's so much snow, it begins to become a little bit uh, difficult to find where to put it. We're piling it higher and higher. We really want everything to be in a nice, neat pile that'll be out of our way and get on with life. And yet sometimes that's not the way winter treats us. Sometimes the snow keeps blowing, keeps going back onto the walkway, making shoveling snow a frustrating experience. It's not easy to shovel snow in the wind or in a blizzard. And that is the feeling sometimes that at least I get, I don't know how you feel about this, uh, when it comes to some of the theological issues that are being raised in the church today. You want everything to be sort of in a nice, neat pile, and yet somehow these things just keep getting blown back onto the walkway. And there are so many current, live, relevant issues that I'll put in that category of theology that it can feel a little bit overwhelming. Um, It can feel a little bit overwhelming from a pastoral perspective and also teaching this stuff at a Bible college. I teach theology courses in general 
philosophy course as well, but well, it, it, it seems to me that it's becoming almost impossible to keep up with the issues that are swirling around and blowing around. It's, it's like shoveling snow in a blizzard sometimes. Now, there's always been theological issues in the church, right? There's always been controversies throughout the centuries. Uh, when I went to Bible college, it appeared, however, that those controversies had more or less been resolved, you know, four or five hundred years ago. And uh, so that was all uh, dealt with and it was written up in books. And so the job of ministry then uh, was, of course, to be aware of these types of things. But then what we were to do is simply repackage these old doctrines, these theological concepts and ideas that have been dealt with, of course, several hundred years ago. And that was what we're going to do in church life. We'll repackage them, we'll put a nice new wrapping on them so that we'll be relevant. But of course, those things are already resolved at some point in the past. That's hardly the landscape in which we find ourselves today. So in preparation for this session, uh, back in the summer, I actually was able to speak on this in November to another group of pastors, but in, in preparation for this, I began to ask pastors. Like, I had some ideas about what were some important theological issues swirling around today. But I thought, you know, I'm going to ask pastors what's going on in their churches and what they're thinking about. What do they see as the pressing theological issues? And so I began to write down some of the things they said, and I began to write down some of the things that uh, I said as well. And I thought, okay, these are the things that need to be addressed. And I began listing these, and then my list began to grow, and it was up to about 30 or 35 items on the list. I thought, well, that's not something that can be covered in 45 minutes. What are we going to do here? Now, now think about this. 30 to 35 items that I'm thinking, these are actually relevant theological issues being dealt with swirling around today. How do we possibly deal with all of these things? So we're not going to talk about 35 things today. But uh, perhaps I can give some examples of the types of things that came up in my discussions and in my own thinking. Some of these issues are such things as the new atheism. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, Rick, Richard Dawkins. Who is Jesus really? Dan Brown and his Da Vinci Code, and more recently Deepak Chopra and his third Jesus. Ecological challenges in the Christian response. How do we deal with this type of thing? Theistic evolution, in some form, appears to me to be the growing position among evangelicals. How does our physiology affect our spirituality and vice versa? What does it mean to be the church? And what is our relationship to be to other churches? What does it mean to be missional? Is the spirit primarily operating in and through the church? Or redemptively out there in the world outside of what the church is doing? And then how do we be relevant to culture while preserving and passing on Christian identity? And what about issues of pluralism? What about the salvation of those in other faiths? Miroslav Volf is someone who uh, has put out a book about a year or two ago called Allah, where he argues that basically Christians and Muslims are referring to the same God when they speak about God. And then there's Pentecostal Amos Young talking about the work of the Spirit already operating within other faiths. And what about eternal destiny? There's been a little bit of controversy about that over the last couple of years. Will all people be saved ultimately? Is hell a future reality? Rob Bell, of course, stirred up some discussion in that regard. What about the atonement? Jesus' death. Is the penal substitution theory the best explanation? The New Calvinism. Heard that term being thrown around a little bit. What is it? And why are so many in my church drawn to it? To people like John Piper and Mark Driscoll out in Seattle. 
and justification. Have we misunderstood what Paul meant by this term? And the gospel, what is it? Have we misunderstood and misrepresented it? And is the sinner's prayer valid or biblical? These are just some of the issues that are, are actually live and relevant and going on in these types of discussions. How are we supposed to get our hands on this? How are we supposed to get a handle on this? Now, I, I give that list just to say this, that the current reality in theology is that there is a plurality of live and relevant theological issues. It's a blizzard out there. Maybe you've experienced this type of thing. You feel it, right? Even if we don't know where it's coming from, you just think, what's going on? 20 years ago, everything seemed so simple. Now it just seems like I'm walking in a blizzard, and these issues are covering the walkways of our church, so to speak. And so for some of us, it's a little bit frightening. For others of us, it's just frustrating. For others, it's irritating. For still others, it's fun. Let's play in the snow. Let's just whip it around. We'll throw snowballs at each other, and it'll be great. But in any case, what I don't think we can do is simply ignore these issues. Just pretend that, okay, they're not there. You know, we, we have everything resolved in the walls of the building. And the reason that I don't think we can do that is some of the issues I've just mentioned are so central, so foundational, to what it is we think we are supposed to be doing week after week, Sunday after Sunday, midweek after midweek. So they're not obscure issues. And so we're faced with the reality that maybe the church needs to do more than simply repackage old doctrines, but face root questions of identity and what it is that we believe. Now, one of the things that might be helpful for us is to ask why this is going on. Why, why is there right now such a plurality of theological issues? And I just, I just want to quickly suggest four ideas, and then we'll move into some of the ones that I think are most practical and relevant for us today. But uh, reasons for the plurality of theological issues. Now, I guess one approach might be to just say, well, younger people are being rebellious and, uh, and they need to submit to truth, but I, I really don't think that's the case. Uh, that might be the case with some, but I'm not finding that. Here are some reasons. One of the reasons that there's a plurality of theological discussion and issues being raised is because of the openness to engaging with culture. There's just an openness uh, in our churches, and especially among our younger generation, of engaging with culture locally and globally. In other words, we want to listen to what people have to say. And actually, this is quite a, a good sign of health in our churches. It's a positive thing. See, part of what's happening, I think, is that Christians are actually listening to people in our congregations. We're listening to our neighbors. We're listening to the people we play softball with or coach softball in the summer. We're listening to those parents. We're, we're hearing these types of ideas. We're hearing needs and questions and hopes and fears. And then we're thinking, well, how do we respond in a meaningful way? What it means is that we're not insulating ourselves in the walls of the church building. And it's part of being missional. And so I see this first reason is actually quite a healthy thing. An openness to engaging with culture. But the moment you open the doors of the church like that, some snow is going to blow in. Some of these issues are going to come in. Another reason for the plurality is the newer biblical scholarship. Van is going to speak to this a little bit later on this morning. There's just, in brief, a lot of things that have been going on in biblical studies over the last number of decades that um, maybe have missed our attention, things that we need to address. The Bible's very really important to us. It's our foundation of faith. You know, for evangelicals and Pentecostals, this is where we look to as our authority. Well, what's going on in biblical scholarship? So 
I think that's one of the reasons. Thirdly, a dissatisfaction with accepting truth on the basis of reason alone. I think that's a third reason why there's a plurality of issues swirling around us. Now, I can't go into much detail here, but in brief, about three, four hundred years ago, as the Enlightenment and modernism began to develop within Western culture, uh, there began to be produced a, a, a strong optimism toward what philosophers and theologians will call autonomous human reason. In other words, humans have a, a faculty of reason that we can use. We can figure things out, we can observe the world, put some ideas together and think, okay, this is what truth is all about. Here's some true things we discovered. In fact, we began celebrating that idea so much to the point where we thought that's all we need. We don't need people at church telling us what to do. We don't need politicians or a king telling us what to do. Human reason will figure everything out. And that, that uh, held on for quite a long time until we began to realize in the Western world um, that which we considered to be reasonable and common sense isn't so common in other cultures, not so reasonable in other cultures. I mean, as we began, began exposed, begin to be exposed to other cultures and listening to those voices, we realized there's more than one way to look at things. And so there's been some doubts about autonomous rationalism, pushing that to too much of an extreme. The moment you begin uh, opening that door, all sorts of opinions are coming in and it becomes a little bit difficult to uh, get a handle on things. Fourthly, there's a vacuum of theological imagination in pragmatic evangelicalism. So I need to explain what this means. Um, I'm taking this term from Robert Weber. I have his book here, The Younger Evangelicals. It's about 10 years old now, but still an important one, I think, to take a look at. Robert Weber says in the, in the 20th century, the last 25 years of the 20th century, one of the most important movements within evangelicalism was what he calls pragmatic evangelicalism. Uh, here, with, I'm thinking of people like Bill Hybels, Rick Warren, this type of thing. The seeker-sensitive movement, which is built on... Uh, on sort of church growth and refining techniques and that type of thing. Now, Robert Weber, and not only Robert Weber, people like Scott McKnight would point to this movement and all sorts of positive things happening within it. And it has been extremely influential in evangelicalism and in our own Pentecostal circles as well. Uh, but what we find in this movement is that there is an intentional, ahistorical, and atheological approach it is intentionally ahistorical and atheological, meaning that seeker-sensitive, pragmatic evangelicalism does not pay a whole lot of attention to church history, because it doesn't really matter. What matters is what Jesus is going to do among us today. So history doesn't matter so much, and theology doesn't matter so much, because more or less it's been resolved. We just need to repackage it. Now, that might be a little bit of an extreme way of saying it, but um, I think there's a lot of truth to that. So truth in pragmatic evangelicalism is not like traditional evangelicalism, says Weber. Uh, it's not based on figuring out rational truths and then presenting it to people. Rather, in pragmatic evangelicalism, what's true is what works, what gets results. And so there was a focus on attracting people. What do people want? How can we help these people become more functional human beings? Uh, therapy, therapeutic approaches becomes emphasized. Uh, when it comes to church organization, organizational functionality becomes very, very important. The Bible becomes, uh, in some cases, 
a book of life and leadership principles, or at least a book that illustrates our life and leadership principles. Not so much a narrative of God's redemptive work in the world into which we are invited. Now, Pentecostals, before we think that we have uh, escaped some of the weaknesses in evangelical pragmatism, we are also pragmatists. It's just that our goals at times are different than wider spread evangelicalism. Uh, we focus on attracting people and having them because we want them to have certain experiences with God. And sometimes if a technique worked, it must be true. Right? So we're pragmatists as well. But uh, anyway, lots of good within pragmatic evangelicalism. A lot of real important needs were met in very practical ways that in many ways had been ignored in the church. Many people's lives were touched and changed and still are being. And it is the, arguably the most influential stream of evangelicalism in North America at the end of the 20th century. A lot of creativity, a lot of ingenuity, but I would argue it lacks in theological imagination and connection to the historical church family. In other words, it tends to focus on what we can call penultimate issues, right? Not ultimate issues, not issues of ultimate concerns. It's issues of how do I get through life, what will help me manage life, but not the so what questions. Again, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but maybe not so much there. It can tell me how to make my life better, not so much ultimately why. It doesn't provide a unique biblical narrative in which to place human life. It has an insufficient frame. This is why Scott McKnight, one New Testament scholar, says that neo-Calvinism, the new Calvinism, is becoming very, very attractive to people in our churches. Because pragmatic evangelicalism has failed to really grapple with significant biblical and theological issues, and our people are actually starved for that. And so where do they go? Well, they go onto blogs on the internet, they pick up books, they're listening to podcasts, and they're hearing a lot about people like Mark Driscoll, John Piper, and others in this new Calvinist-type camp, and they're like, wow, they're like really telling me about these Bible passages. They're really dealing with theological issues. And Scott McKnight says, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't buy into a lot of neo-Calvinism, but he goes, but at least it's getting people to think, you know, pick up their Bible and, and start thinking about these important issues. All right, so those are some reasons I think that plurality exists, but let's take a look at some uh, particular issues that I think might be of interest to us, or at least they need to be of interest to us because they have some fairly immediate practical implications. And um, I mentioned a whole bunch of issues earlier. And if you want to bring those other ones up that I don't mention here in Q&A time, we can do that. First one, soteriological issues. Salvation is about more than me and my soul. I'm really seeing this as a growing trend from a number of different places. This is one of the live issues that is being discussed and debated. And it's so central to who we believe we are as Pentecostals, what we believe is our mission and calling in the church, the gospel and salvation. Now, one of the benefits of pragmatic evangelicalism is that it worked hard to remove the barriers of misunderstanding in our culture. One of the things I really appreciate about people like Bill Hybels and Rick Warren is they, they did what we do in missions in other nations. You go to another nation, you think, well, I should at least 
try to learn the language. I should at least try to understand the culture. So people like Bill Hybels said, you know, we, we're living in a different culture than we think we are. We're not even speaking the language of the people around us. So, I mean, that was one real benefit of pragmatic evangelicalism. It's doing missions, except right in your own neighborhood, right? And so it worked hard to remove those barriers of misunderstanding com, uh, concerning the gospel. One of the downsides is perhaps too much reliance on marketing techniques in the midst of that. But the basic message didn't change all that much from traditional evangelicalism, which was basically this. Jesus died for my sins so that one day I can go to heaven instead of hell, and I can also have a better life now. And we have reduced that message of salvation to as few points as possible so as not to confuse people, right? The Bible is far too complex of a book. What we need to do is reduce it to as few points as possible so that people won't be confused. And that's basically it. You can have Jesus as your personal Savior, be forgiven of your sins so you can go to heaven when you die. And there's also some benefits in the meantime as well. But there's been a growing dissatisfaction with that presentation of the Bible story, of that rendition of the gospel. There's at least a couple of reasons for this. One of them is simply that it doesn't sufficiently account for the whole Bible story of God's salvation. I think Van is going to say something about this in his session a little bit later on as well. In other words, some people are really starting to believe that the gospel as we've been telling it has failed to take into account the whole Bible story. Instead, it's reduced salvation to what God has done for me and my sin and my guilt and my shame. So it just doesn't take into account the whole Bible. Secondly, it's not sufficiently holistic. It's too individualistic and too otherworldly. It emphasizes the salvation of my soul this spiritual dimension of who we are as humans, but giving too little attention to who we are physically, socially, emotionally, psychologically. As N.T. Wright says, Jesus doesn't save souls, he saves holes. W-H-O-L-E-S. A colleague of mine a few years ago, Dave Kennedy, said it this way, Jesus doesn't save souls, he saves people. So there's a recognition that there needs to be a broadening of our understanding of salvation that can take into account all of human life and creation itself as well, while also including the idea that I can personally be reconciled to God. And so there's a movement to take the story away from me and my soul to a story about Jesus and how God is working out redemption in the world through Jesus. So several examples seem to fit with this movement to recognize that the gospel is larger than we thought. Uh, one of them is this. There's considerable discussion on the gospel. Is it sin management or is it the story of Jesus as Israel's Messiah? Like when we say in our churches, look, all we want to do is just present the simple gospel. What is it we mean by that word? So people like Scott McKnight, I've mentioned him already, and Dallas Willard even in the late 90s in his book, uh, The Divine Conspiracy, began to raise this type of issue. Dallas Willard says, really, we have reduced the gospel to what he calls a gospel of sin management. But rather, the gospel, as Scott McKnight would, and not only him, but others would say, the gospel is simply the story of Jesus. The gospel cannot be reduced to simply a story about how I'm forgiven. It can include that, but the gospel is, in short, the story of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and also his return. 
That's why the Gospels are actually called Gospels. So at the beginning of those books, you know, say the Gospel according to so-and-so. And, so. and that, that's why that, that title is given to him. The whole story is the good news. Now, within that large gospel, there is what we can call personal soteriology, personal salvation, but it's found within the broader gospel story. But how one gets born again cannot be rightly called the gospel. To do so limits the story and purpose of why Jesus came and what he's doing and what he has in store for the world. Rather, what we're to do is locate our lives in the story of Jesus. And of course, that story includes forgiveness of sin and a new life for us personally, and the Holy Spirit indwelling us and empowering us and all of those things. But broadening this story, what it invites us to do is not simply get into a relationship with Jesus, but it invites us actually to place our whole life into the story of Jesus and to find our identity there. In other words, it makes it far easier for, easier for us to enter into a process of discipleship. This is, in fact, what the meaning of water baptism is when Paul talks about it in Romans 6, right? Our identity actually has to become that of Christ. We're buried with him. We rise with him. When we, make, when we take that action, we're identifying my whole life is about this. I'm placing it into the story of Jesus. Well, so what? So what? We broaden the definition of gospel, you know, good for us. Well, no, I think what it means is some really practical things. I think it means that we need to approach evangelism and discipleship differently. Evangelism cannot be a sales pitch as if we were selling something. You know, by, we, we convince somebody that they have a need, we have the product that they need. Uh, we'll, we'll, you can get what you need in exchange for a sinner's prayer. As important as those things are, Scott McKnight says the gospel cannot be reduced to four spiritual laws or any other simple points. Rather, I think making disciples means, here's what Scott McKnight says. He says, we just need to tell the story of Jesus. Actually, tell the gospel story. Present the story of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his return, and allow the power of that to draw people in, because the Holy Spirit will do that. In fact, McKnight goes so far as to say, if we can present the gospel without reference to Israel and Jesus being the fulfillment of everything that the people of Israel were expecting, he says, we are telling a different story than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if we broaden this, if we tell the story about Jesus and what it means to follow Jesus, McKnight believes this will more easily lead us into a life of discipleship because it actually begins with identity formation from the outset. So maybe let's talk a little bit more about that. Conversion. What about conversion? Is it a crisis moment in our lives or is it a process? A really good book on this is by Gordon T. Smith called Transforming Conversion. He's one among several who raises this issue. Uh, evangelicals, Pentecostals have been very good at making converts and developing methods for doing so. The problem is that we have found that it's not worked very well for making disciples. And that's why in June 2012, the Southern Baptist Convention had a debate on the floor as to whether the sinner's prayer was biblical or detrimental to discipleship. And one popular writer, David Platt, stated that the sinner's prayer was superstitious. You know, he was exaggerating on purpose, I think. He was trying to make a point. But it could operate as a superstition that if one prays this prayer, it guarantees that you are saved. 
See, he, I think he was saying it tends to make people feel as if they're Christians, but it's inadequate for moving people into a life of discipleship. Uh, Gordon Smith says it's odd that we have seminars in our churches sometimes on how do we make converts into disciples? Isn't that odd that we would even think in that type of language? How do you make a convert into a disciple? Jesus never had that problem. He just called people to be disciples. In fact, that's what we're called to do. We're called to make disciples right from the start. So this might involve seeing conversion as not just a moment in time, but more so as a process. Pragmatic evangelicalism has been good in helping us recognize this. People are on a journey, right? And we need to, to work with them and walk alongside and answer questions and, and, and build relationship. But I think people like Gordon Smith and Robert Weber, when they speak about conversion as a process, they're not just talking about helping people along a journey to where they become converted. They're saying even once they get to a point where they express interest in, wa in wanting to follow Jesus, we need to make conversion a longer process. So it might begin with a prayer, but then maybe we need to bring them through some teaching and something else, and then baptism, which would be this final stage in their conversion process. Now, I know the question comes up, yeah, but, what, but if they died in the middle of that process, would they get to go to heaven, right? <clears throat> God will take care of those things. Conversion is more than just about me and my relationship with God. It includes, I think, integration into the people of God. And that's why I think conversion, that's not a bad idea. Think about perhaps conversion as more of a process. I recommend Smith's book, Transforming Conversion. A very practical book as well, outlining what it is we're aiming at in making disciples. All right, here's a big one under soteriology. We looked at the gospel, we've looked at conversion, but how about atonement? Uh, what are we supposed to believe? A penal substitutionary view or perhaps Christus Victor view? There are many atonement theories, but there's two that are receiving a lot of attention lately. One of them negative attention and one of them positive attention. Traditional evangelical and Pentecostal, well, reformed emphasis anyway, which, which we often have used within Pentecostalism. Uh, that traditional emphasis on the atonement has been a penal substitutionary view. Jesus on the cross paid our penalty for our sin by substituting his life in place of us. It has a lot of biblical support but it is facing a lot of negative critique by a growing number of evangelicals. They wonder if it's too narrow in scope, making salvation primarily about our personal relationship to God. There's been questions about whether this emphasizes God's wrath too much as being satisfied on the cross, as opposed to God's love being satisfied on the cross. Some have even accused the penal substitutionary view as being an example of divine child abuse. I think that's overstating the case, and it's a misunderstanding of the Trinity in that case. But um, So, as an alternative, what seems to be growing in popularity is a Christus Victor view. Literally, that means Jesus is Victor, and it's gained a great following. Gregory Boyd is a popular writer and a pastor in the United States who has emphasized this view quite a bit. This view says that Jesus came to defeat the works of the devil. And we can see this not simply in the death of Jesus and his resurrection, but in his whole life. As he goes around healing and casting out demons, Jesus is confronting and defeating evil in his life and ministry. And he proclaimed life and justice, not only in his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his return. Humans are slaves to the devil and a corrupt world system. And Jesus comes to bring deliverance. The deliverance was especially accomplished through his cross and resurrection. 
C.S. Lewis in his Narnia series seems to take this type of view. You remember Aslan on the stone table? So through Jesus' life, death, resurrection, humans are given freedom, and we are invited to share in Jesus' ministry of resisting evil in the world and entering into discipleship. And this view, I think one of the reasons it's becoming so popular is that it resonates with young people who are already given to sort of a generic missional sense. In other words, they want to get involved in social justice issues, Christian or not. And so when young people, uh, young adults, look at this, these types of views, they see one as being a little bit more narrow. But the Christus Victor view, view just resonates with what they're already interested in. And so, in short, penal substitution view emphasizes human responsibility for and need to be forgiven of sin. Christus Victor view, on the other hand, emphasizes human brokenness and captivity to the devil and evil and the need for God to rescue us. Now, one of the major criticisms of the Christus Victor view is that it does not adequately account for human responsibility for sin. It's one thing to say that we're victims. But it's another thing to ignore that we bear responsibility for that. And that's where penal substitutionary view tends to really help us understand our need for forgiveness as well. A good author on this is Mark Galley. He's one of the editors for Christianity Today, and he's written a lot of good stuff on that. But in any case, another live issue. Now look at these. Gospel, conversion, atonement. These are part of the the, the blizzard, right, that's that's moving and covering the walkways of our churches. These are not peripheral things. They're not peripheral discussions on certain technique for organizing the church or doing a particular session or something else. These are core to what we have said we are about for years and decades Salvation is about more than me and my soul, seems to be the movement. So we can choose to ignore this, I guess, and say, no, we're just going to ignore these issues and we're just going to preach the gospel. But then you need to ask yourself, which one? Whose definition? We hope you've enjoyed this episode of MCS Pentecast, podcast produced by Master's College and Seminary. MCS Pentecasts are available online at mcs.edu and also through iTunes Podcasts. Master's College and Seminary offers biblical, theological, and practical courses from a Pentecostal perspective at both undergrad and graduate levels. For more information on graduate courses offered through the seminary in Toronto, Canada, visit mpseminary.com. For undergrad courses at Master's College in Peterborough, please visit mcs.edu.